Hello and welcome back to the PSC In Conversation. Uh, the PSC is a specialist consultancy dedicated to improving public services. So this podcast is designed to tell you everything you need to know about the big issues affecting the public sector right now. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button whenever you listen to podcasts if you'd like to stay up to date. So, hello, I'm Chris. And I'm Makoto, and we're from the performance team at the PSC. Today, we are diving into the world of mental health services. In recent years, there's been a huge nationwide momentum towards improving and widening access to mental health care for children and adults across the UK. But uh, how do we actually improve these services for both patient experience and for the quality of care they provide? Um, I mean, that's the, that's the real question, isn't it, Makoto? Um, I, I think one of the biggest opportunities that NHS trusts have to improve is actually related to patient flow. Um, patient flow, if, if, if you don't know, I'm sure many of you do, but if you don't know, it's the movement of patients through a kind of particular healthcare pathway, uh, and it can be characterised by how patients are admitted, how they stay, and how they're then discharged back home. Uh, if you get flow right, then patients are able to access services really efficiently and effectively. Um, if you don't, and if there are blockages discharge and the average length of stay or the length of you know, time that patients stay in hospital, for example, then patient flow will be affected uh, negatively uh, and patients will have to wait. Um, I think we're all probably familiar with ambulances waiting at A&E due to poor patient flow, uh, and that's, that's you know, one of the reasons why we're here. So clearly getting patient flow right in any acute healthcare setting is important, but in a mental health uh, acute setting, it can be particularly complicated. That's right, Chris. Um, for mental health, it seems like putting too much emphasis on discharge speed can really impact the safety of patients. And it could also mean that they get readmitted to the same pathway repeatedly, while poor patient uh, flow, which means that people kind of stay longer in hospitals than they should be, can also lead to a lack of bed space for others, leading to longer wait times. Or the worst outcome actually is when patients get sent to trust very far from where they live, so they have to stay quite far away from their families and carers. So finding this right balance of patient flow is actually super challenging let alone changing the ways of working amongst staff and services in a way that leads to the most desirable outcome is a whole different challenge. Agreed. Um, all the more reason then why this conversation today is, is so important. Um, so with the help of a special guest, we'll be hearing from the front line about how the, some of the challenges um, mental health trusts face uh, when it comes to managing patient flow. Uh, what happens you know, when, it, when it goes wrong uh, and, and some approaches to how we might get it right. Amazing. Really excited for this, Chris. But uh, before we dive into our interview, we wanted to kind of give everyone a context as to how we came about this topic and why we're focusing on it now. So last month, the PSC performance team held our first roundtable event in the mental health space, and we brought together experts spanning a wide range of perspectives to ask the question, what can acute and mental health trusts learn from each other to offer high quality care to patients. So there were lots of interesting topics that came out of it. And Chris, you hosted the roundtable with amazing, skillful MC skills. So to kick us off, could you tell us some of the most interesting points that came out of the discussion for you? <laughs> great, Makoto. That, 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 that's very kind. Thank you. Um, it, it was a great discussion, wasn't it? Um, I mean, there were probably three things for me that stood out. I mean, firstly, I think it was clear that many of those principles and approaches that are used in acute physical hospitals um, can be applied to mental health settings as well. 
uh, and all the panellists agreed that applying these methods w would have an immediate impact on reducing delays for mental health service users. Um, so it feels like here that you know, some of the work we've been doing recently is therefore well aligned to these needs. Um, secondly, though, kind of re reverse to that really, it was also clear that you can't just plug and play, as one of our uh, audience commented. You can't just plug one solution directly in from, for example, a medical ward in, a, in a, an acute hospital uh, into uh, an adult mental health ward. There, there are some subtle but important differences here that need to be considered. Um, for example, treatment in, in mental health settings, of course, is much more therapeutic and therefore depends upon relationship building between the patient uh, and the staff, which can't be rushed. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's really key. You can, you can plug and play, but, but you, you need to tailor it uh, really carefully for mental health settings. And then I think the third point that came up for me was, was that the group seemed to be really optimistic, actually, about making change happen. There, there was a sense that we had to embrace this complexity um, and collaborate to generate real improvement. Um, and this desire to co collaborate and design services aligned to patient needs is certainly something that I think acute physical hospitals could learn from mental health organisations. There seemed to be a, a really strong energy within the group we spoke to uh, about how to, to you know, integrate care systems and kind of you know, help uh, provider, uh, help collaborations between providers uh, roll out effectively. So I think there, there were lessons both ways, both from the uh, acute into mental health settings and also the other way around as well. Yeah, I think that was an amazing summary, Chris, and you picked out some of the most interesting points. But in general, there was a real passion towards kind of driving these points strongly, and there was a real consensus that, yes, there's so much to be shared and learned between these settings. And maybe kind of building on your last point about embracing the complexity and collaborating more effectively uh, in the system, it became really clear to me how challenging it is for services to find genuine ways of collaborating towards a specific target after years of existing in a really competitive space. But from the examples that were being shared, particularly from Liz Durant on provider collaboratives, it seemed like such a kind of rewarding journey to be a part of, especially as we see so many movements across the country trying to work towards embedding, kind of integrating uh, integrated ways of working um, at different levels. And perhaps on a personal level, it's been really interesting to hear about patient flow and kind of see things from a pers the perspective of the hospital management um, and compare it to a clinical one. So from my own experience of working at an inpatient service at uh, children and, and adolescent mental health services, when you're on the ground, you really realize that the focus becomes entirely on the patient at hand and you get very little sight into kind of the full journey that the person, the person takes to reach the inpatient service. And there's just a little conversation and space for staff to really think about um, who is waiting outside these services and capture this systematic perspective. So bringing that into a room filled with clinicians um, was quite refreshing, I think. And um, with all these systematic challenges in place, I think one of the key things we need to, to work towards is embedding a kind of change uh, in people's mindsets and the ways of working uh, on the front line and lead to kind of where we want to get to. 
I agree. Th- thanks, Mikael. So that's, it's really good to hear about your your personal experience then, thinking of you know, the clinician's view, of course, is, is indeed of that patient in front of them. Um, uh, and therefore, that that slight change of mindset, kind of stepping back and considering the whole the whole pathway as well, is of course you know part of this. Thanks, Chris. Um, so now I'm very pleased to welcome our guest today, Frederick Johansson. He is a consultant psychiatrist and consultant lead for patient flow in Camden and Islington NHS Foundation Trust. He provides leadership to the Islington Crisis Team, which is one of the first crisis teams in the UK and is helping to develop community services to support people in a mental health crisis. He's also been leading the clinical uh, quality improvements since April 2017, managing the QI program, which helps frontline teams and the people they support to improve their services. Dr. Johansson studied psychology, medicine, and mental health science research. And through his Darcy Fellowship in Clinical Leadership, he has evaluated the pathway for older adults through acute mental health services and also developed a home treatment team for older adults, uh, which continues to provide super high quality and an award-winning service. So he's basically the expert to talk to about uh, all things quality improvement in the mental health setting. And we met Frederick for the first time at our roundtable event, where he candidly shared his hands-on experience of improving patient flow in his clinical practice. And his expert approach to the challenges around patient flow was super fascinating to, to hear. And he brought this refreshingly real but uh, genuinely optimistic perspective to what could feel like a super naughty problem in this field. So we wanted to hear more about his experience and uh, we knew the conversation would be super valuable, so we're happy to be sharing it with our beloved podcast listeners. Hello, Frederick. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So before we dive into the content of discussing patient flow and about all the naughty problems that you've worked on in your practice, can you give us a brief overview of yourself and some of the most exciting projects that you've been working on um, in your practice? Yeah, so so I'm a psychiatrist by, by background. Um, I uh, work in uh, a small mental health trust, relatively small, in, in, in uh, inner city London. So there's a very high burden of mental health problems uh, uh, that, we, that we deal with. Um, and usually I've been uh, based in crisis and home treatment team services. So our job basically is to support people at home who are really in a mental health crisis to prevent them from coming into hospital and to get them out of hospital early. So I've always sort of been involved in this philosophy really around not admitting people to, to hospital or trying to make those hospital stay, stays as short as possible. That really only came about kind of in the 90s um, and it's been part of a kind of longer mm. um trajectory of moving away from this hospital model to a community-based model. Um, so, but my work on patient flow uh, really uh, has has been about um, the last couple of years doing a, a fellowship with the Health Foundation and really studying um, patient flow, the theory around it, but also then being able to, to take some of that theory and put it into practice in the clinical setting to, to learn and see how how can we improve things um, and and how do we use some of these ideas around patient flow that exist to, to really make a difference? So that's been the most exciting part of, of, of the work. 
Amazing. Um, the whole philosophy to not admit is something that we keep seeing in so many different areas of, of healthcare, but it's so prominent in, health, in mental health. And um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear kind of what was the key to translating that theory to practice. So it'd be really interested to hear um, what kind of solutions has made a real impact on patient flow for you. Yeah, I, I I think you know we've been thinking a lot about this recently because we we were looking at our, our data that came for the for the kind of end of year 2020 2021 and we've gone from being a position of having 99% bed occupancy so we were sort of at the at the extreme end not where you want to be you know national benchmarking uh, we were full all the time so really not a great place for for lots of reasons you know that's about financials but more importantly it's about how how your teams feel under that kind of pressure and the and the quality outcomes that affects for patients so people are waiting really long times in needy departments to get into hospital it's a huge amount of stress people are having to be treated out of area um of away from home so so it has real quality effects but and we've we went from that to being now our benchmark was 90 percent. so we're below the kind of national average now wow. um we've been below 90 percent. we've been helping some of our um trusts around us with with uh, supporting some of because they're really struggling with patient flow so so we've we've really seen a big change in the last couple of years um but we've been thinking well, what, what made the difference and I think it's so interesting, this, because we have done a huge amount, and I think lots of places are doing huge amounts, and trying to understand the specific parts that made a difference is actually very different, difficult because it's a complex system. Everything's interacting with, with each other. So there's all these variables that interconnect. So I think it's a part of it is understanding how is one part of the system affecting the other parts of the system and what you have to think about is almost a package of interventions that have a complex interaction that are somehow leading to improvement um but i would probably focus if i was to focus on some things is is our our, our real success if you look at the numbers we've only reduced our length of stay which is very long by about five percent compared to last year so really not a lot a couple of days and 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 so not a huge change there but we have reduced our admissions by 14%. And I think that was the kind of game oh. game changer for us. That, And that's a huge amount, right? And and the reasons for that are, are interesting. But obviously, what we do have is a system that's able to um, help prevent admissions. Um, uh, and also, our readmission rates have dropped quite significantly. So people aren't, in mental health, there's very high rates of, of readmissions at 30 days, 90 days. That's what we measure you know, as, as high as sort of at 90 days, people, a third of our patients might end up back in hospital. So we've managed to reduce those. So it tells us something that you're looking beyond the actual just inpatient stay. But also, what are we doing during the inpatient stay to stop someone coming back in? But but the kind of wider system support around how do we offer alternatives to admission? And then how do we keep people well at home once they've been discharged, I think have been key parts given that that reduction in our admission rates. Wow. Um, 14% is actually such a significant number, especially yeah. in this field where it's so hard to really see quantified impact. Um, and yeah. really love the idea that you have to see it from a very systemic perspective and the whole patient journey, kind of not just on the inpatient uh, service bit, because that's the tail end of someone's 
Absolutely. Yeah, and and it was it was so, and and then you know it, it just you know you're always finding information about this. So I think the data side of it is so key to really look at, uh, and and so we were discussing this uh, only a few days ago, and and realised that actually, well, you know, you also have your just what what happens in the weeks before someone comes into hospital, and those are kind of your more acute services. But but actually, what's the impact of your normal community services? Now, what we've realised is our community services have had a huge increase actually in referrals, but that hasn't translated into referrals into our, you know, acute services, our crisis teams, et cetera. So they've obviously been able to kind of hold some of that. So you're also really dependent on your, your just normal community services who are seeing patients to stop them going in. And that might sound obvious, but I think for a lot of people during COVID, they haven't been they've been less able to support those and they've seen massive surges in their admissions which is obviously the the most difficult thing to deal with and I think a lot of places are dealing with that at the moment is these huge increases in referrals for admission and and they just become overwhelmed and crisis services become overwhelmed so they can't stop admissions and so again it's that whole system uh, working together uh, and how you manage that so absolutely and how do you think the community services are dealing with that surge though. So I guess if you don't have patients coming into one part of the system, then you always find them somewhere else. And how do you manage that kind of balance? I guess it's it's quite difficult, um, I could imagine, for communities. I, I, yeah, I... I, I, it's, it's a difficult question. What I know is that we've been quite good at keeping an eye on, are we seeing our, our, our highest risk patients? And, and there was a whole program of work, which, which isn't really my area, but of making sure that we were seeing people who needed to face-to-face during COVID. That, that, and they kept a really close eye on that, on, on who were they seeing, who do we think might become unwell. Um, and, and that kind of preventative approach, I think, is key, but you need the resources to be able to do it. And then you know, the, the thing that really protects your hospitals in a way, and I say protect, is is that kind of uh, that ability to respond very quickly to a crisis. So our, our crisis services are really developed. We have lots of crisis houses um, and we can react very quickly. So I think having that support network means that only really the people who really do need to come into hospital end up coming into hospital. And then you can deal with, with, with that group, I think, more effectively because you're not so overwhelmed you can make sure that they get all the treatment they need and they're not discharged too soon because of pressures. So maybe that's why your readmission rates come down. Um, and, 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 you know, then again, it's that interconnectedness of things. Because I, I did find when we were really struggling, and you go back several years, I'm sure this is true for some places, what happens is people are discharged because you have to find people to discharge and maybe they're discharged a bit too soon. And then that puts stress on community services. And actually, it causes um, friction between, imp- and we were in that situation where you, because one of the real problems with patient flow is, is teams stop finger pointing and get frustrated, blame each other. And that is one of the most kind of insidious and dangerous things about problems with patient flow. We've always seen, you know, the ED departments blaming the, the medics, they're blaming the surgeons. And, and, you know, and in the end, patients suffer. But it's so easy to fall into that trap because you feel like, uh, why, why, why can't this person? And, and for mental health, it's, the EDs get so upset with us when someone's and, and rightly, you know, that you, we've had patients in, in 
sitting in an emergency department room where they really shouldn't be for, for days you, you, because you can't find a place for them to go. And, you know, you might have seen, you know, things in the press around young children and there's no beds in the country and, and they've been had to stay in a, in a uh, you know, in, in an acute hospital ED department for days. And it's, it's a terrible situation. So, so that kind of stress and blaming that comes with the pressure of problems and patient flows is a really key things. And if you can address the patient flow, actually what you're also doing is addressing kind of staff well-being and, and, and actually that sense of working together. But it, yeah, so it's a very insidious problem. And, and one of the reasons I, I think it is satisfying is to see improvements in those relationships between teams and really focusing on that has been a key lesson for me that how are we building the relationships between parts of the system so that we all feel like we're, we're pulling in the same yeah. direction, which is really tricky. It's so fascinating that patient flow seems like a process issue, but it requires a real cultural transformation for the whole organization. And was there anything specific, do you think, that was really key to creating that shift from that blaming culture to a more collaborative culture in the system? I, I mean, it's a really good good question, and I don't think it was intentional in, in any way. And I think part of the problem is that just the pressure itself can lead to the problem. So you end up in these vicious cycles. Uh, and on the other side, if you if you find some improvement, it actually could be virtuous cycles of actually we find we're working together and that improves things. But I, I, what I would say is focusing on the relationships is key. And we were very lucky to have some people who were working in the community services who were very, very engaged and were you know present and involved and helpful um and and those i think three or four people being able to really who, who were senior in those community um positions but also wanted out those initial relationships were, were so key because they obviously have positive relationships with people in their team so they could then be communicating with with their own team and and but i but I, what i would say is absolutely focus on the relationships across the system because that is you're not going to you're not going to get anywhere if you if you're not focused on those relationships and they're, and if they're not positive and good so it's an essential part i think of any system approach is absolutely focus on the relationships and make sure that you have strong good relationships with 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 all the parts of the network that are important which is pretty much every the whole, the whole system yeah Sounds like a really insightful piece of uh, advice for transformation work. Um, we were also curious to know, is there anything you tried as an intervention that actually didn't end up working as well as you thought? I, I think there's two parts to that. There's things that we wanted to do, but we just couldn't implement so well. And we still really want to work on because the implementation side of things is, is, is so difficult. And you might think that this is really going to do something but we just can't get it. You know, the teams can't, we just can't get the teams to do it. So two areas I'd probably look at there is we were very keen on this, on this um, idea of creating some um, standard operating procedures, standardizing some of the work. Uh, and we spent a lot of time kind of process mapping and then looking at, well, what, what does good look like? What would help you know, because you say you have 16 wards, there's a huge amount of variation between how they might approach things. And and one of the things we really wanted to do was try and figure out what are the key things that we think are going to help uh, patient flow. So that early meeting around uh, setting the, the purpose of admission, 
um, you know, people talk about estimated discharge dates, but I, I think that uh, integrated early kind of approach of, okay, what, are, what is it we're doing? What are the key things that will help move things along, identifying barriers to discharge, et cetera. But, but the, the standardizing the practice, the, the, and I don't mean just, you know, exactly telling people what to do all the time, but really being clear what works well to make sure we're going to give, you know, a high quality inpatient stay and not cause delays. Now, that's been very, very tricky to actually get done um, and, and feel like there's people are using the same approach across the system. And, and so I think standardizing work in healthcare is very, very tricky <laughs> as, as, a, as a general rule, but a, a, to implement that is very, very hard. And again, I think that's a, that there is a cultural aspect to that. You know, if you go to, to kind of study how things work in, in private sector or, you know, the airline industry, which is kind of gold standard in terms of safety around standardization, using checklists, et cetera. Like they, the culture there is a, a completely accepting of it. And they know that that improves uh, quality in terms of safety, et cetera. But it's harder to get that shift in, in healthcare. So that's an area we, we, we I don't think we've, we've managed to really um, make huge changes in, but we do want to continue with that work. Um, the other th area that we really wanted to do, which again is a complex issue, is reducing the reliance on on our consultants for decision making and discharges, and and make it more um, sharing the kind of decision making across the teams. That's been very very difficult as well. There is again a cultural thing, but but there you know there are very real reasons for this. The mental health act, so you have to have um, a consultant make decisions about taking people on or off off that. But there is still this sense that people are relying on on the doctor or a senior doctor to make all the decisions. And we wanted to maybe try and shift that a little bit because it does cause massive delays because you're waiting until the doctor's there the next, you know, the next week or whenever they're running the clinic. And actually you think, well, you know, this person can be before then. The other one is actually on our, our length of stay. That's been a real challenge. We put a lot of effort into it. And I felt like 5% was quite a small amount, actually, uh, in terms of, they were only talking about, you know, that's, what, two days. Uh, and actually, we put a huge amount of effort into it. So I felt, was that really the, the, the uh, you know, a, a good return on investment, uh, I mean, in the, into what we put into it. So I think those are, those are three areas I'd probably say um, are, are interesting and, and, uh, and, and challenges that I thought we, we might get further with. Well, there's so much that I would love to unpack in there, actually. But maybe starting with the um, whole idea of moving away from the consultant-led decision-making. So I guess my assumption is that would benefit um, to kind of try and incorporate more considerations for social factors beyond clinical psychiatric factors in decision-making, which maybe would lead people to think of patient needs in a more holistic way. Um, do you think that's the main goal or is there also something else to that you guys are striving for when you're trying to make that shift? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a good question of what is it you're, you're, you're wanting to, to shift, shift away from. Um, I, I think, so, so I'll give you an example, you know, sometimes I'll go on to a ward and I'll speak to a ward manager and ask, you know, the consultant might not be there, but I'll, I'll go, you know, take part on board and say, well, to the team manager who's, who's mostly a nurse, but back to them, I say, well, can they go home? Do you think they can go home? And they'll say, yeah, they're well enough to go home. Now, that person knows cases really well. They really know when someone's ready to go or not ready to go. But I think there's something in the culture that, uh, you know, th th there isn't a process for them saying, well, you can discharge them. 
<laughs> and, and and so why is that? And actually, in that situation, even if this person was informal, so not under the mental health act, what they would do is probably call the junior doctor, who may have had a month's worth of experience of psychiatry, whereas this this person will have been been working in in mental health for years and years. But they feel like the person who makes that decision is is the doctor. Um, and so, so for me, it's it's much more of a cultural system uh, problem than than a a than an expertise problem. Uh, and I know in acute hospitals they've tried to overcome this by doing things like criteria-led discharges. So, do they meet this and this? And people have talked about that in psychiatry. But, but but what we do have, which which I show is can kind of break that mold and, and cultures. We've got our you know crisis team, in reach team, and they are nurses or could be social workers, and and they can discharge people because they can take someone on uh, to the crisis team and say, well, we're ready to take this person on. Obviously, they would have to be there informally, but but so so it's not impossible for 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 someone else to make make the decision, but. But it, there's a barrier to it and a feeling like this isn't my responsibility. And, and maybe that is partly around culture, but also about feeling that the, dealing with the risk of it. And that is that is something that, you know, it, it's sort of like a lot, for a lot of people, it's like, well, I don't want to be the person making that decision and, and dealing with potential consequences. And I think that's a real factor in mental health because of, of the dangers and risks you're dealing with and and. People say, "Well, let the consultant decide." You know, they're paid well. Uh, fair enough. You know, you know, you're you will have that responsibility as a clinical leader, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. And and I think the 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 crisis team model shows us that actually more than one person is able to decide. Let's let's this person's ready to go. And there are people like that. You know, there are care coordinators who who tell me, "No, come on, let's discharge this person." I love that. That's great. You know, you don't. You, it's not. You'd have to rely on a, a you know, sort of omnipotent doctor to to decide on everything. It just doesn't. It's not necessary. And and often people know much better when someone's ready. So, I that's the culture that that I think would really be beneficial to flow overall and uh, that kind of culture shift. The risk being a key factor is so unique to mental health, uh, it seems like, compared to, say, patient flow in acute settings. Um, and I guess that's that's the kind of key component that shifts from the inpatient service to the community, for example, when someone gets discharged slightly earlier than before. I guess that, that would be kind of um, a side effect of a length of stay becoming shorter than before. Um, and how does that risk manifest with... Uh, admission avoidance, where I think you said that you saw more impact. Yeah, I, and, and and so working, and I think that's, it's a good question in terms of it's the kind of ownership of risk, and I, I think it comes down to experience or, or, or the teams you come in and work into. So, so the, the the same is absolutely true when we're talking about admission avoidance, because you know some people. Uh, the typical situation would be sort of it's 4 a.m. Someone's come into A and E. They say they su- they're suicidal. You're you're sitting there as a kind of junior doctor with the patient, and you feel well. The safest thing here to do is, is and they might not need admission. And we we've got lots of ways of supporting someone in that situation without them needing uh, to come into hospital. So, but but the question is, often that person doesn't want to have to deal 
with the potential risk of what if something goes wrong? What if they go home and, and they take an overdose and I'll be held accountable for that? So, so, so what the systems that protect you as a, as a team from that is, is, I think, for example, in our crisis teams, is, is that we take we share that responsibility. So we say, actually, we as a team um, feel absolutely that we can help deal with this this situation and we know the history and so on. And, and so you have the service that's able to say, uh, we can we can manage high risk patients, and we feel we can do it outside of a hospital, the hospital walls, um, and and that culture exists, and and it, it, it's about making sure everyone everyone is is part of that. So, so in some ways, it's about taking the risk decision away from an individual and saying give give enough support to a person to feel like. When we're in this together and we're making this decision together and often it's the right thing for the patient and and for your system and it's it's about preventing people being too risk averse uh and and actually you can absolutely do this but but let's not put the burden on an inexperienced person at 4 a.m um who who feels like it's it's it all is on on their shoulders yeah well i love that kind of a lot of what we're talking about comes down to a cultural transformation. It's, it's a real common theme here. And perhaps moving slightly away from this and going back to the point you mentioned about standardization, it's definitely such a big challenge in any kind of um, change that we want to make in the system. But we do remember from our previous conversations that you, you mentioned that being a really kind of key factor and you've actually found lots of inspiration from other industries so I was really curious to hear kind of what those principles were that you've borrowed from outside healthcare, for example, and how they might manifest in uh, patient flow for mental health. Yeah, I, I, I so I when I was with the uh, doing the Health Foundation Fellowship uh, Generation Q, I was able to go over to the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in Boston, so a big quality improvement um, institution, uh, and. And I remember listening to to someone um, who a, a surgeon or retired surgeon that used to work for um, Intermountain and, and really was one of the people in the, in the kind of sixties seventies who started developing the quality improvement kind of movement um, using thinking actually from other industries. But but there was something that he he pointed out that this is something we've always been doing in healthcare. Um, now, he said something that really stuck with me, and, and it was that that the the road to truly outstanding personalized care is standardization. And he kind of said, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's absolutely true. And that really stuck with me. And I often have this discussion when I'm trying to say, well, let's do it like this with consultants. They say, well, I don't just want to be t- do things by road to... Um, and be told exactly what to do. But the key point is that we live in such complex worlds. There's far too much information going on around us for us to actually be able to process this all and know exactly what to do when. So in order to be able to deal with that amount of information, that amount of complexity, we need help. Uh, You know, we're not superhuman. So we need things. So that could be like nice guidelines that tell you, you know, you've got a patient with bipolar disorder. 
you can't possibly know all the information. There's thousands of studies happening all the time. There's all, all, all these things going on. There's no way you as an individual is going to be able to understand all that, digest it, and keep up. So, so here are some key principles that you need to stick by. That's standardization, right? So you should use lithium. That's the gold standard, right? Like, great. So, so, so that's one example of it. But let's say you're in a kind of a clinic situation. You are reliant on standardized processes all the time. So I see a patient for the first time, maybe who's just been admitted. I, if I'm going to make good decisions, I need to have that person's blood tests available, their ECG. So I rely on a process that's happened before I step into the room that's going to provide me those. I rely on the kind of that it's going to, you know, we have a process that says, you know, that that happens on admission so that when I see them the next day, I've got that information. I'm hopefully we'll have the medication review and we have a process of saying all the medications they've ever tried. So, so basically you're, you're relying on a system and standardized processes because otherwise you end up in chaos and, and then I can't make the right decisions for the person in front of me. So if everything works really well, and it can only really work very well in complex systems if you have standardized processes, then I actually have the time to make really good decisions and give the right information to the patient and say, well, here is what I know, and let's have a conversation now. Uh, I'm going to give you the best available information about how to manage your problem, uh, and because I have that knowledge and it's provided for me and it's, you know, it's here. And... So now we can really, I can, so, so if I didn't have that, I'd be having to run off and five minutes I'd be spending looking for the blood test results that weren't there and I can't make the decision. You, you, you see what I'm saying? And actually, and then it just continues after that because say I say, okay, we've agreed now. Like I've, I was able to really explore your issues and problems and we've decided together that actually lithium might be the best treatment for you. Now I'm completely reliant on a system of stand, standardized system that is going to, the pharmacist is going to get that medication, check that it's the right amount, make sure it's safe, you know, and, and all these other places are able to do these, stand, have standardized processes. I think doctors have been a bit more re re resistant, you know, from using checklists to whatever. And you're, all, all the quality of care is, is reliant on those things. But if we, if we don't have that standardized process and know exactly how to deal with complexity, because standardization basically helps us deal with complexity. Um, and, so so the more you have of that, um, and it doesn't mean that we're kind of automators or robots, it actually frees you up to focus on patients, right? And, and I think that's the kind of key thing that people, it, it's, it's so difficult for, for, for people to digest and understand that you're so reliant on these processes that can only work if you're standardizing things. So, and, and other industries obviously know all about this because you look at how, how safe the, the airline industry is. And, and the cultural thing, I think, for doctors is, might be around moving away from this idea that you are some kind of superhuman, right? Like you get kind of taught in medical school. You're going to solve everyone's problem, you as an individual, and moving away from that kind of philosophy, which was how medicine was seen, you know, in the, in the 50s and 60s. And Brett James, who was the surgeon I was talking about, you know, he, he was kind of held his hands up and said, these hands are going to cure you. And it's not about that actually anymore. Um, uh, Ara Darzi said that what they don't teach you, teach you at medical school is that healthcare delivery is a team sport. It's, and now it's a system sport. And actually, you have to rely on these processes happening. It's not about your own kind of skills and abilities. It's, it's about how the system works to support you to deliver great care. Um, 
and and I guess that's the insight I took. So that's why that's why I think is a real benefit, or, or or that we should encourage us to work on standardization, but you have to do it in the right way. And I think that's the, the danger of avian healthcare that people don't always get it right. I don't know, you know, I'm not an expert in getting standardization right, but what I did hear from when I've listened to people like Don Berwick or if you read Atil Gawande's checklist, what he was kind of saying is actually we try and do a checklist, but we get it all wrong and actually we mess it up. And that's why there's there's a, there's this resistance in, in healthcare workers because actually we're not doing it in a very expert way it, not in ways that's actually helping improve quality. And so that's where he was learning, actually, if you look at the airline industry, their process for creating standardized work is extremely kind of um, refined uh, versus maybe what we do, which is right, a, a very brief kind of five five boxes that may not help actually the process at all. And and so there's there's how you do standardization, which is also key, which again is the how you implement those things. So it's a fascinating area, and, and, and I think that there's a lot to do, I think, in healthcare on on that. Definitely. It's really fascinating. It's a lot about alleviating capacity, like you said, um, and the how of implementation. Um, it's so complex, and I'd imagine there's so much work to be done. If I were to play a devil's advocate um, for mental health, I guess the thing, the thing that popped to my mind is just kind of how complexity manifests in like comorbidities and how people just simply don't fit into those diagnostic categories. And I'd imagine that there's a lot of people who are treated as kind of treatment resistant or they just don't fit into these processes no matter how they're standardized. So how do you think systems can deal with these complexities that just won't be able to be categorized and people who require real long-term consideration yeah it's 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 a hugely complex issue we often deal with people who we're not sure what the what the diagnosis is and that throws the whole treatment um regimes in the air um but i would i would still hold that that a lot of these principles are true um that that they help you in in how you approach a problem um so so I think they represent kind of a small number as well. You know, there's lots of people who fall in between diagnostic categories. In fact, that's a huge problem for us. We we moved from, uh, you know, these service lines or designed our system based on diagnostic criteria. And actually, a lot of places did that and have now reverted to more of a population-based um, approach which is what we're going through again so all the integrated care systems is really about let's look after this population and, and in some ways you're then ignoring we're not really saying you get treatment if you've got this illness that causes huge problems and, and i think what you're saying is you know if you try and standardize along those lines you know you have personality disorder that's your box this is how we're going to treat you um, and if you have psychosis, that's your box. And we find all the time, well, we're not quite sure. Maybe there's both, um, how, you know, which team is going to treat you. And I think that's a system design problem, actually, that what you're doing is actually creating a system that is providing really poor outcomes for, for that person. Um, what you need is, is to, so, so I, I much prefer a system that's designed around this is the population. So this is your patient. Um, and it doesn't really matter what the diet, but, but you have to be careful because also, 
you do have to understand that that within that you have to provide evidence-based medicine uh, and care for that person and so it's it's neither this nor that it's it's a kind of yin yang you know it's it's the kind of interrelationships of those things so the model we are moving towards is well you know this person might have multi multiple kind of morbidities but we need to think together what's the evidence based treatment we can provide and what what do they want so that you know someone who who could benefit from you know something like dialectical behavioral therapy for example that they get it because if you're just doing things holistically you're kind of and you're not trying to understand what's the evidence-based treatment for this condition you end up not providing evidence-based treatment so so they're getting that balance which is hugely difficult and and i think again the more space you have so if you create the systems you know that say for example we have enough bed capacity we're under 90% that means i can spend more time working across that whole multidisciplinary team network really speaking to the different parts of the system taking the time to speak to family that person and you end up with better care for that person so those things are interrelated that you get your systems really right you get your patient flow really right you're going to end up making better decisions because you've got more time to think uh, and speak and and work together on complex cases so i think in in a long-winded way um you know if if you get your systems right it, it benefits uh, patients amazing really grateful that you've tapped into kind of the future perspective as well of where you're moving towards so maybe to wrap up the conversation uh, my last question is what's kind of the up-and-coming exciting thing that you're working on uh, maybe around the same uh, topic or maybe something completely different I, I i'm i'm very excited i mean it's, it's a huge challenge but i think the, the development obviously that it's it's happening everywhere via integrated care systems is is hugely exciting um and i'm very interested in how it's going to affect demand for inpatient care uh and and hospital care because really in in the end that's really about prevention isn't it i I was reading Michael Marmot's uh, book, The Health, I think it's called The Health Gap, uh, and he talked about healthcare being the uh, the failure of prevention. Um, so it's a quite a striking, striking comment, but it is true. So I, I almost think that, you know, if, if you look at inpatient mental health services, that's basically the failure of, of, of prevention, uh, uh, the whole system, um, that the social factors are absolutely the biggest part of that. There's everything from um, you know childhood adverse events which is probably the biggest driver of of people developing mental health problems um, inequality uh, and so all those social factors is what you're seeing basically writ large the consequences of that inside those walls of a hospital and for me and I, and I don't really you know I'm not I'm not I don't think we'll if, if we could see a significant change, it'd be fantastic. But I just think that issue is so complex that I'm not confident, really. And, and it's such—it's actually beyond medicine, isn't it? It's, it's actually about social, the social structures and, and societal structures. But that's what I think, if you're talking about something that would really make a difference to, to the whole mental health you know, situation, it, it is looking at those social determinants of, of mental health and, and health in general 
and and I think when I read that and and I visualized just our hospital as as, as basically the consequence of our of our failure to deal with with social determinants of health and I think that's where we should focus our energy well Frederick that was a really inspiring and fascinating conversation um thank you so much for joining us um and hope we can have you back to talk about uh, maybe practical stuff around the social <laughs> determinants as difficult as it is i'm sure you'll find so many interesting ways to to approach it no i've really enjoyed the conversation thanks so much and and i'm, I'm not an expert but it, at all but i i think it is a challenge for everyone in medicine is, is to be focusing much more on those social determinants and how we do it and and so absolutely uh, interested in learning learning and and sharing around how we how we do that thank you so much definitely thank you freddie take care bye if you'd like to learn more about this topic do check out our article a matter of days or weeks what can mental health and acute trusts learn from each other where we outline the key learnings from our roundtable last month until next time this has been the psc in conversation Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back with another episode very soon featuring analysis on another one of the big challenges facing the public sector. Please subscribe where you get your podcasts or we'd love to hear from you with questions, comments or suggestions at hello at the psc.co.uk. Hey, wow, there we go. Take one. Awesome. Take one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, th I think that was okay.